This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehia Suhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. It's a great day because we haven't seen violence in Nigeria. Nobu has won this election, but his work has only just begun. That was Professor Kuweku Nuwama, profession, Professor of International Politics at American University, speaking about Nigeria's new president-elect, details coming up. Also, we'll hear more about Nigeria's elections from VOA's Peter Cloti. And international partners are encouraging Libya to move forward on its elections. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Nigerian ruling party candidate Bola Tinubu has been declared the winner of the country's presidential election, and he already faces legal challenges. The Independent National Election Commission, or INEC, said today that the former Lagos mayor captured 8.8 million votes in Saturday's election. Second place candidate was Atiku Abubakar, the opposition People's Democratic Party candidate with 6.9 million votes. Peter Obi with the Labour Party captured 6.1 million votes. Tinubu will succeed President Mohamedou Buhari, who has served the maximum two terms. The election was marked by long delays in voting and slow arrivals of results that angered voters. Opposition candidates vowed to challenge the result in court. For more on the developments in Nigeria, my colleague Peter Cloti, who has been covering the election, joins me on the line from Abuja. Welcome to African News Tonight, Peter. Thank you very much, Yehayas, for having me. So how is the mood in Nigeria? Are Nigerians acclimating to the news of uh, Bola Tinubu's ascension? Well, there are two reactions going on. Supporters of the All Progressive Congress or APC are jubilating that they have won the election. They have retained the most powerful seat on the African continent with the biggest uh, economy in Africa and the biggest democracy in Africa. On the other hand, the opposition uh, supporters are crying foul that they think the elections were manipulated, they think it was not credible, and they are even calling on the INEC chairman to step down and for President Mohamed Buhari to act. But for now, uh, Asiwa Jubola Ahmed Tinubu, popularly called the Jagaban, is the president-elect. This, after he officially received the certificate of return from Professor Mahmoud, chairman of the Independent National Electoral Commission, or INEC, this afternoon. He was declared winner in the wee hours of the morning. Several hours later in the afternoon, he received the certificate of return, which effectively makes him the president-elect in poor position to take over from outgoing President Mohamed Buhari in May, when he's officially sworn in as president. So, like you just mentioned, Mr. Tinubu, known as Jagaban by supporters, uh, don't you think he will now have to look at unifying a country that is retreating into regional lines and religious blocs, as the election result shows? Thank you very much for that question, Yehe. As a matter of fact, that has been the expectations 
of a lot of Nigerians I spoke with this afternoon when I went into the streets of Nigeria to get a view of their expectations of what is going on. And they also cited his first speech when he uh, pretty much extended an olive branch and a welcoming branch to uh, the losing candidates, talking about former Vice President Atiku Abubakar of the PDP, uh, the main opposition party, and Labour Party presidential candidate Gregory Peter Obi, that he extends his hands of friendship to them and that their views will be considered. And for those who did not even vote for him, he will be their president, a servant president. So his job is cut out for him, and he says in his speech that he's ready for the job. So, uh, Bola Tinubu, a trained accountant, uh, he's widely credited with reshaping Nigeria's commercial hub, Lagos. So, uh, wouldn't that be uh, very instrumental to actually, you know, Africa's most populous country is facing a crumbling economy. So, is he the right person for the right time here? Well, apart from being an trained economist, he was also an executive, as you said, uh, the former Lagos State governor. Uh, he has a lot of influence there, but he's also a businessman. He, he has a lot of business interests, and he said that he transformed Lagos to the state that you find in, such that the revenue generated by uh, uh, Lagos State alone is much to much to envy from other states. As a matter of fact, the taxes they use to generate a lot of revenues, other states will invite uh, uh, experts from Lagos to come and teach them how they were able to be successful. Lagos State has one of the biggest economies in Nigeria, and that is one of the reasons why it's also the commercial capital of, of, of Nigeria. So it has a lot of potential. He believes the way he was able to transform Lagos in that scale, he will be able to replicate it uh, and expand on it here in Abuja to the entire country. It remains to be seen if he is able to keep those promises. Nigerians are expecting him to lead, to solve a myriad of challenges that they face, including improved living conditions, growing insecurity, among other issues. So he said he's up for the challenge. He will start from day one. So uh, lastly, Peter, the People's Democratic Party, PDP, and, and the Labour Party, I'm talking about Mr. Abu Bakar and Mr. Obi, have they uh, congratulated uh, Mr. Tinubu? Well, they are yet to do that. Um, actually, they called press conferences to denounce the election results. Uh, leaders of the respective political parties held joint press conferences demanding uh, the resignation of uh, Professor Mahmoud Yakubu, chairperson of the Independent National Electoral Commission, saying he failed to organize credible elections despite repeated promises of using technology and, you know, as imposing and aspiring confidence in young people. And they think they, he dashed the hopes of young people because they said he failed to organize credible elections. On the other hand, people in the uh, ruling party, the APC, are in a jubilant mood. They said they won an election free and fair and that there's no election in the world that is 100% perfect. You look at some of the kinks, you resolve them in later years, and then you move on. So they believe that if the opposition has credible evidence, they should go to court to seek legal redress. Those are the issues here at the moment in the country, and particularly here in Abuja. Live from Abuja, our VOA's Peter Cloti. Thank you for your input again, Peter. You're welcome, yes.
Professor Kweku Nuama, Professor of International Politics at American University in Washington, D.C., who has been closely monitoring the elections, tells me that Bola Tinubu, 70, having won the election, will have to tackle many issues. He says Tinubu has to unify the country and become president not only for a segment, but for the whole of Nigeria. It's a great day because we haven't seen violence in Nigeria. Tinubu has won this election, but his work has only just begun. He has to get to work immediately trying to unify the country. He has to calm his own supporters down and create space for the candidates who are alleging fraud to be able to go to court and seek uh, relief, present their case, present their evidence, allow the process to go forward and have their day in court. I think he also needs to understand that he hasn't won a large mandate. He got 8.8 million votes. That's less than 10% of the 93 million registered voters in Nigeria. And even though he met all the required thresholds, that's not enough. He has to be president for all the 210 million people in that country. And so he needs a big dose of humility and understand that he has to reach out to everybody, particularly all the young people that invested so much hope in the candidature of um, of Peter Obi. They are the future of Nigeria, and he has to reach out to them. He has to reassure them that he's going to hear them and he's going to do what they want, the changes that they were asking for. I believe that's one of the votes that went to Peter Obi were a vote of no confidence in the two uh, traditional parties. And so now he has to reassure the young people that he's had their complaints and he will govern in their interests. Professor Kueku, Mr. Abubakar's and Mr. Obi's parties, the People Democratic Party, PDP, and the Labour Party have claimed there is a lack of transparency with the new electronic voter system. Um, you know, this was the first national election where an electronic device had been used to, you know, accredit voters. So you think uh, this will go to court? Are we looking forward? Maybe if these people are complaining, a rerun? It, it's going to go to court, but even if it doesn't go to court, the INEC itself needs to find out what happened. They need to do an audit and find out why the results were not showing. Because remember, they were showing results for the legislation election, the legislative elections, but they were not showing presidential results. It was delayed. And any time you have something new, you're going to have glitches. But you need to be able to make sure that these things don't happen anymore. What they need to find out is whether there was some kind of shenanigans going on or this was just technical hiccups. But they need to allow people who are dissenting to have their day in court. You need to sit down with them. If they want to go to court, let them go present the evidence. If not, do a self-audit and find out what went wrong because this was not good. If you look at all the reports that are coming from the independent and foreign observers of the elections, uh, nobody's saying that this election was well run. Maybe it's just incompetence, maybe it's just problems with a new technology, but something went wrong, and they need to acknowledge that. Instead of being defensive, they need to acknowledge that and find out what went wrong in order to rectify it for future elections. Uh, you're right. The European Union observer said the electronic body's poor planning and communication under mind the trust in the process. So moving forward, uh, Professor, Mr. Tinubu, a southern Muslim, picked former Borno state governor Kashim Shetima, a northern Muslim, as his vice. 
So this move was seen as appeasing Nigeria's Muslim majority, which has the largest voting bloc in the country. But, you know, it drew the ire of many Christians who say it went against the tradition of mixed faith tickets for the presidency. Yes, uh, but there's two issues here. So he got the religious balance wrong by taking another Muslim, but he got the regional balance, the north-south balance right. And so he has a northern Muslim and he himself is a southern Muslim. So the regional balance is okay, but the religious balance is not there. But the way you rectify that is by appointing you know, prominent Christians to your cabinet. You can do that. He's governed successfully in Lagos. And you know, Lagos is not a heavily Muslim-dominated state. So he, he can work across the faith divide. And he needs to reassure people that even though we are both Muslims, we are putting Nigeria first. And essentially, that's what he said in the, his acceptance speech. He's putting Nigeria first. So I think that he's, a, he's the kind of person that can uh, reassure people this was a, a strategy to win the election. By the election is over, now he has to govern and he needs to bring people into the governing coalition to reassure everybody that their interests will be addressed. That was Professor Kuweku Nuama, Professor of International Politics at American University. He spoke to me from Washington, D.C. VOA House of Service Haruna Shehu reports that President-elect Tinubu was born in Lagos in 1952 to a Muslim family and belongs to the Yoruba ethnic group, which makes up 16% of the country's population. He started his education in Lagos and Ibadan in Nigeria's southwest and later moved to the United States in the 1970s and graduated from Chicago State University in 1979 with a degree in business administration. He returned to Nigeria in the 1980s and began work for an oil company as an auditor. In 1993, when a military government annulled election results, Tinubu became a founding member of a pro-democracy movement, the National Democratic Coalition, or NADECO. In 1999, he was elected to the governor of Lagos and served two terms. At 70, critics say his age and health might be a disadvantage. During campaigns, Tinubu missed several of his party's big events, and observers say he had looked frail during some appearances. He has repeatedly brushed aside concerns about his health. You're listening to Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Twelve years after a popular uprising, Libya finds itself with two rival governments. Abdul Hamid al-Dabiba represents the UN-backed government in Tripoli and Fatih Bashaga representing the parliament in the east. And tensions have begun to spill over into deadly clashes that risk spiraling into wider conflict. Stephanie Williams, former United Nations Special Envoy to Libya, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohammed al Shanawi how the violence could affect the UN and US push to have elections this year. Of course, it's very important to maintain calm on the ground. And broadly speaking, the ceasefire, the 2020 ceasefire, has continued to be respected. You have not seen a return to large-scale conflict that was witnessed in 2019 and 2020. There have been flare-ups, and particularly in Tripoli, and that's the, the loss of innocent life is unacceptable and needs to be uh, condemned. So, yes, uh, ensuring that there is stability and that there is buy-in 
from all of these forces, there are too many, too many entities uh, with weapons in Libya, that to ensure that everyone accepts the fact that elections are going to take place and that you have advance buy-in, some kind of electoral pact, let's say, between particularly if the country goes to presidential elections, that those who do not win are going to accept the results. What should the Security Council do to help finding a solution in Libya? Well, look, I mean, I my, my view is that it, it is the overarching international process. There's no doubt that the UN Security Council uh, is quite dysfunctional right now because of the conflict in Ukraine. And, and the sharp differences amongst the permanent five members. So I don't think that you can rely solely on the UN Security Council. That's why the principle of this Berlin architecture that was built in 2020 should still apply and should be harnessed and really energized in order to get behind uh, the UN mediation. What's needed from the U.S. and the international community to help Libya achieve unity and reach a political solution leading to a national monitored elections? Well, look, I mean, uh, it's no secret that I have said that I believe that for the United States, the Libya file should not be subordinated to other regional priorities. Libya should be a priority in and of its own, and that the current administration should be willing to sometimes have difficult conversations with various regional actors in order to get everybody sort of into that minimal consensus that is necessary in order for the country to really move forward uh, on the electoral path because there really is no solution in Libya except through the electoral process. To go to another interim government, sure, everyone everyone is talking about let's just let's have another united government. Here's the deal, unless Unless that government is constrained, as we tried to do in Geneva, with small government, with four tasks and a limited budget, you may well just, you know, repeat the same scenario of creating, you know, some kind of Frankenstein government with 35 ministers or whatever it is, and that just once they're in the seats, you know, they must have Velcro on those seats because nobody wants to or can leave them. And you have to have the incentives and disincentives in place that people know, okay, I'm only here, I'm performing a national service, and then I'm moving my country towards elections where the people can select or elect those who govern them and represent them. And that's the right and necessary thing to happen in Libya. That was Stephanie Williams, the former UN Special Envoy to Libya. She was speaking with my colleague Mohamed El-Shinawi. French President Emmanuel Macron begins a four-nation tour of Africa today amid rising anti-French sentiment that saw French troops recently leave Mali and Burkina Faso. Macron will visit Gabon, Angola, the Republic of Congo and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Anika Hammerschlag speaks with security and rights experts on the growing regional opposition to French involvement and support for closer ties with Russia. J'en retirerai une seule exigence, celle de faire preuve d'une profonde humilité. Days before his departure, Macron announced France would be taking on a more deferential relationship with Africa that would require France to assume a profound humility in its dealings with the continent. As part of the new strategy, French military bases in Africa will transform into military academies, while others will eventually be co-run with African partners. Two of the countries Macron plans to visit, Gabon and the Republic of Congo, are former French colonies. 
Mahamudu Savadogo is a security expert with Granada Consulting in Burkina Faso. Depuis ces derniers temps, la France fait l'objet de critiques. For a long time, France has been the object of criticism and rejection because its position has always been one of dominance, he says. But there is a new opportunity to be had. There are youth who have never known colonization, and there's a new paradigm that France must consider in order to improve the relationship with other states. France's military withdrawal from Africa will allow its former colonies to finally assume full statehood, he added. But as France has distanced itself from the continent, other parties have moved in. Private Russian military group Wagner has established a presence in Mali and the Central African Republic, where it has been accused of atrocities such as torture, rape, and executions. Agibubuare is president of the National Human Rights Commission of Mali. He acknowledged the accusations against the Wagner group, but said it was up to the state to carry out an independent investigation to evaluate the allegations. For me, a country does not have friends. It has interests, he says. And any partner that can help us fight terrorism is encouraged. I'm not concerned about who that partner is, he says. Deaths linked to Islamist militants on the continent skyrocketed by nearly 50% in the last year to more than 19,000 people, much of it in the Western Sahel region, according to the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. Ahmed Yaqub Dabio is the president of the Center for Development and Prevention of Extremism in Chad. He said he blames France for the destabilization of Libya, which allowed extremism to filter into the Sahel in the first place. He says Wagner's arrival in Francophone Africa is the result of France's failed Africa policies. France has always supported African dictatorships. It has always turned a blind eye to human rights violations, he says, and France hasn't made the effort to radically change its policies. France would do better to support Africa via health, infrastructure, and education projects, Debio added. In his speech, Macron said he did not accept responsibility for the worsening security crisis in Mali and that he would not let France become a scapegoat. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. We wrap up our series on U.S. Black History Month today with a conversation about slavery. In 1619, a cargo ship called the White Lion carried a group of kidnapped people from what is now Angola to America's eastern shore. A book has been written, and our VOA's Carol Van Dam talks to the author. So I think it's depending on the school or the district or the state, it's, it's going in, in, in either direction. You're saying there still is pushback, and depending on where you live and where you're trying to teach. Yes. Your book includes a, a lot of short stories and commentaries, as well as trying to set the the record straight a little bit straighter, at least on U.S. history, how it really unfolded. Can you just pick a few examples, kind of give our audience some idea of what's in your book? There's so many different forms of blackness that's portrayed, which then allows us to really be able to convey the entirety of this community. A lot of white people in our country say, you know, you're so angry and they're they're kind of afraid to deal with it. And what about the, the retribution factor? And we shouldn't have to pay for our ancestors' mistakes. How do you feel about that? I think there are, there are, um, People who, who imagine that I personally am angry, which shows me that they've actually never seen me speak and they actually haven't read my work. And then there are others who don't want to acknowledge that there is a such thing, for instance, as 
transformational or I should say transgenerational wealth. So the, the idea that uh, there isn't a legacy or that, you know, past generations can't benefit from racist policies and pass those benefits on, people know that that is, people should know that that's true. And if they don't know it, then I think they have to just take stock about reality. Besides this book, 400 Souls, you also uh, do a podcast called Be an Anti-Racist and, and the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Talk about that a little bit. The title is pretty self-explanatory, but just go into a little bit like what you probe in this podcast of yours and, and how you deal with people who just, they may not even think that they're racist, but they do things that, you know, may not sit right with you and other people. In terms of, um, you know, people believing that they're not racist, well, you know, in my work, I show that there's really no such thing as not racist. So either being racist or anti-racist, we're either recognizing racial equality or racial hierarchy, we're either supporting equitable policies or inequitable policies, and that's what I'm trying to show. That was uh, Ibrahim X. Kendi, author of 400 Souls. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehi Suhib in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing The Voice of America.